I trust that you and I are standing in awe of our Savior. That when we get together to worship, it's not just another thing we do on Sunday. It's not just a religious thing that we do. But that we really are standing in awe of our Lord, the one who died for us. We need a deeper appreciation of him, and we also need a, a, a deeper understanding of how heinous our sin is to the Lord. So let's pray and um, jump into God's word. Lord, today we do stand in awe of you. You're the holy God, and to you all praise is due. The entire world owes you praise, but so few do that. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. You would find us giving you heartfelt praise and worship. And, Father, we also want to remember as well um, our brother Elijah, who is in basic training right now. Lord, we pray that as our missionary to the military right now, Lord, that you would help him to become a leader of men. Pray, Lord, that you would help him to be a model Marine, but also, Lord, that he would, by his testimony and by the things that, that he does and says in relation to you, that, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted and glorified and that you would attract men to him, that he might lead them spiritually. So, Lord, we leave him into your hands, not just the hands of the, uh, the drill instructors. <laughs> in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we think about it. We sing about it. We dream about it. We lose sleep worrying about it. When we don't have it, we search for it. When we discover it, we don't know what to do with it. And when we have it, we fear losing it. Sheshinar goes on to say, it's the constant source of pleasure and pain. But we can't predict which it will be from one moment to the next. It's a short word easy to spell, difficult to define, and impossible to live without. Ballothead describes it this way, to give everything you have and not expect anything in return. Suze the Great says, this makes yourself vulnerable to someone while fully knowing that they may betray you. Another poster puts it this way, it's what starry-eyed lovers whisper as they gaze at an ocean sunset. It's what an eight-year-old shouts to their mother as they sprint toward the already departing morning bus heading for school. Well, I guess that must be pre-COVID days, right? It's supposed to be the deepest level of emotional connection between people, yet society has transformed it into a pop icon phrase to be screened onto glittery fuchsia tank tops and written inside Hallmark cards with pastel bunnies and butterflies dancing on the cover. And I don't believe I just said that. (laughs) I'm supposed to be a man. (laughs) It's become such a complex emotion to the extent of which we are uncertain of what it truly signifies and when it is the real thing. And then, of course, there's Miracle Max, who described it best. It's the greatest thing in the world, except for a nice MLT mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich. When the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes ripe, real perky. So what am I talking about? 
Love, of course. Of course. And all except for Miracle Max's famous description of love, these were taken from the Urban Dictionary. Amazing what you can find there. (laughs) So we're in 1 Corinthians 13, right in the middle of Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians about how to give God worship that he will accept. And more specifically about what spiritual gifts are for. Unless we forget what Paul's main concern was throughout this letter, let me remind us. In a word, disunity. One-upsmanship, arrogance. I'm better than you. That sound like any kind of Bible fellowship or church fellowship that you know about. See, this is a, an old-fashioned enemy tactic, divide and conquer. But Jesus prayed for unity, even for the Corinthians in the first century and even for Grace United in the 21st century. So in the middle of Paul talking about spiritual gifts, he tells them, I will show you a more excellent way. Well, Paul, what is it that's the most excellent way? Well, it's the desire that the Corinthian believers had for spiritual gifts that set them up as being on display before each other. They were, they were uh, kind of bogged down in that. And Paul says, no, I want to show you a more excellent way than that. And so Paul dives in and tells him about the more excellent way, the way of love. A lot of people have heard about the love that Paul talks about here. It's the Greek word agape, and we're going to talk about the word agape. We're going to use it a lot today. And here I will have to agree, though, with Miracle Max in part. Love, agape love, is the greatest thing in the world, demonstrated by the greatest person in the universe. God himself. See, agape was the reason God sent his son into the world. And as wicked as this world is now, I cannot imagine what shape this world would be in if it weren't for Christ coming into the world, living the life he lived, dying the death that he died, rising from the dead, going back to heaven, and coming back again. Can you? I mentioned last week that with this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul was going to launch the Corinthians into the stratosphere of what God wants of his people, the most excellent way, the way of God's love, agape. He spills some ink writing to the Corinthians what cannot be fully written about. If we remember the song, those of us who've been around for a little while, the, the song called The Love of God, we can sing it in our heads, can't we? Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies a parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Beautiful, beautiful song. And you know, 1 Corinthians 13 isn't the only place where Paul stresses how amazing and vital agape love is. You're writing to his young pit, as in pastor in training. I love those acronyms. Paul tells Timothy that love is the sum total of what they are all about. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, the aim of our charge, and some versions have it, the goal of our instruction, 
is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is what it's all about to Paul. Now, our passage for today is often referred to as a poem. And these are beautiful words, truly. Words that many say make up the most powerful description of love anywhere at any time. And like with any poetry, to study it, it often takes away some of the power of the poem. But this is a word of Scripture, literally breathed out by God. And these verses originated in the mind of God and were communicated through the mind, the personality, and pen of the Apostle Paul. And so we don't have to worry about any divine power loss here. But with that said, I want us to not only go through these verses, this, this passage, and study it a little bit, but I want us to also experience it as well. So before we walk through and bask in and are challenged by these verses, I want us to show a video, a video clip. I want us to experience this where the actor who's playing the part of the Apostle Paul recites these verses. Well spoken, Paul. Well spoken. So now let's look at the best description of love ever in three parts. In verses 1 to 3, we're reminded of how important love is. In verses 4 to 8, we are going to see a divine picture of love. And in verses 8 to 13, the surpassing greatness of love. Now, though we know it, we probably know it by heart, we've heard it, let's read it again, verses 1 to 3, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak the tongues in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, in these three verses, Paul tells us of the absolute importance of love, regardless of how great, how prominent a spiritual gift is displayed. And really, regardless of any achievement, of any activity performed by any member of the human race. Notice the spiritual gifts in these verses. Tongues, or or prophecy, or prophetic powers, and faith. Notice in verse 3 also where Paul does not mention a gift per se, but describes himself as one who is sold out for probably a martyr's cause, offering his life as a faithful testimony of his service to God to literally give myself away. As I said last week, What is the biggest word of the English language? But. Exercising a gift that God himself gave? Completely giving myself away? All well and good. But if I don't have love, I'm making a bunch of noise. I gain nothing. I am nothing. Now, what is nothing? (laughs) Someone described nothing as like a ring with the gold circle taken away. And what looks so powerful to so many is absolutely nothing in God's eyes if the powerful displays 
are not permeated and motivated by love, by agape love, that is. So we've seen Paul lay out the importance of love, and that begs the question loudly, what is love? How do we describe it? Verses 4 to 7 is what love looks like from God's vantage point. Let's gaze upon the facets of this exquisite jewel called agape. But before we go through this list, let me point out what was pointed out to me as I was preparing for this. Every facet of this divine jewel is not a state of being. It's an active word, an active thing. In other words, patience literally means putting forth patient action. It's doing kindness and so on. And how about you? This gives me great hope because me personally, I'm not a very patient person. What about you guys? See, love demands I do something, not so much be something, and do something to others and for others. See, I'm a little more patient now in my 60s than I was in my 20s because I got a little bit broader perspective on life or whatever. I just find out there's some things I just need to follow my sword for. But even though I'm not all that patient in my character, I can act patiently because truly love is a verb. So without further ado, let's walk through these descriptions. They're admittedly very brief. (laughs) They're common. And much has been written about each one of these. Ask me how I know. Because to pare some of these things down was really, really tough. Because there's a lot of good things these commentators and learned guys have to say about this. But let's catch a little glimpse of the many facets of this divine jewel called agape. And the first one on the list is indeed patience. It is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaint or irritation. (laughs) How many of us failed that one? (laughs) It literally means to have a long fuse. And so in a sense, displaying patience is what you and I don't show, right? We don't show irritation, but we display patience. And by the way, patience toward whom? (laughs) The one who's provoking us. The one who's giving us a tough time. Kindness or literally showing kindness means doing something beneficial for someone else. It does not mean, again, a nice disposition. A beneficial action is what Paul is talking about here. However, kindness does not mean there's no heart behind the action, just like with every other of these facets. But again, the act is what's in focus here. One author writes that the attitude that goes along with this word, quote, suggests the warm, generous welcome the Christian always gives his brothers and does his utmost to be thoughtful and helpful, always in a pleasant way. That's kindness. That's showing kindness. Well, pastor and author Chuck Swindoll had this to say about kindness. He says, when you're washing someone's feet, take note of the temperature of the water. <laughs> well, the next facet Paul points out is that love does not envy. It does not display burning emotions of jealousy. You know anybody like that? Have you ever done that? Given how competitive the Corinthians were, which even carried over to the church, one writer had this to say about it. Envy is not compatible with love. Duh. Rather, it delights in the status and honor for others just as if he or she received that honor. 
In other words, if you get honored, I am just as happy for you as if I received that honor, even if we were going for the same honor and you beat me to it. See how easy love is? Continuing on, love does not boast. In our way of saying it, love does not toot its own horn. Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. That's what not boasting does. In other words, we let other people tell us if we do something worthwhile, something meaningful. See, Muhammad Ali's I'm the greatest speech does not even escape the lips of those who are living by agape love. Love is not arrogant. It does not magnify his or her own importance. It does not draw attention to itself saying, I'm better than you. See, when people live this way, what do we say about them? Well, they might be insecure or all that in a bag of chips, right, and so on. You know, this person puts himself up by putting somebody else down. Agape and arrogance do not go together. Love is not rude. Respecting others, showing good cultural taste, displaying good manners in public is pretty much what Paul's talking about here. You didn't think that love means manners, did you? As one author puts it, love does not elbow its way into conversations in disruptive or discourteous or attention-seeking ways. But remember the context. It's in corporate worship settings here. You know, as Christians, we wait for one another. We don't talk over one another. We don't want upsmanship one another, do we? You ever heard people say, well, you know, I've had this. Maybe it's a tale of woe or, or something. They're really pouring their heart out. And what does somebody else do? Well, you know what? I've got this story. You know, how many times have you heard that? That's not what Paul is talking about. That's being rude. Another author, author suggests that when a pastor engages in sheep beating, that was an example of being rude. You know what sheep beating is, don't you? It's when a pastor calls somebody out publicly when they're doing wrong to help them to, uh, to, to fly right, to straighten up. That's sheep beating. You ever experienced that? You ever seen it? I've, seen, I've heard horror stories about this. Love also does not insist in its own way. The idea here is that one person is all wrapped up in their own interests and not the interests of others, especially the things of God. For example, attending a worship service primarily or exclusively to be with that certain someone. And it's not God. <laughs> See, in my BC days in high school, I did go to church. I wasn't a pure pagan, I guess. But why did I go to church? Because I had a girlfriend, <laughs> and I was trying to impress her. But that was my experience. That was my motive. Insert any number of selfish aims right here. We can sum up Paul's words this way. A person who demonstrates agape will never be accused of being called Mr. You Planet, right? It will never be all about him or her. Love is not irritable. In brief, to quote Paul, to quote one author, Paul urges, not, love does not overreact when our pride is wounded. Hmm. Anybody guilty of that one? It's not embittered by injuries, whether real or supposed. See, when one loves with agape love, he says, basically, thanks for helping me to see another blind spot in my life. And he means it. It's not just being snarky. Especially when someone gets up in your face 
and tells you that you've done something wrong. The one who loves treats those who point out wrong things in their lives as God's instruments to help them to become more mature in Christ. Another facet of love on the, uh, the agape jewel is that love is not resentful. And some versions have it, does not take into account a wrong suffered. One who loves does not keep score in the you hurt me department. Anybody resonate with that? It does not nurse the memory of an injury. In other words, love does not hold a grudge and vows to get even. Of course, we deal with sin in the church, don't we? Go like this. Yes, we do. Church discipline is what we need to do. And many churches need to do more of. But the test of whether we are loving the one who injured us is that we deal with the behavior in a biblical way. You know, there's passages of Scripture that teach us how to do that. And though it was done to me personally, I don't take it personal. There is the line of demarcation. If I'm loving that person, I'm not taking it personal. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Now, this is a huge thing in our day, isn't it? How much wrongdoing is found even in the church? And when someone loves agape style, he or she grieves over wrongdoing. And how it works out in our relationships goes something like this. We don't enjoy seizing the opportunity to publicly lecture or rebuke somebody who's done something wrong. You know people like that? Just call you out, boom. See, we see a fellow Christian doing wrong, and we take pains to confront them, yes. But we confront them at the right time, at the right place, with the right attitude. But how many people who say they have the gift of prophet, they call people out, and they, and they so beat them down that when they're finished, this person's on a puddle, in a puddle on the floor. It's been said that the church is the only army which shoots its wounded. Let's take care not to do wrong, or not, not to uh, help those, as it were, those who are doing wrong by doing things that are not God's way. Let's do it God's way when people are doing wrong. Love also rejoices with the truth. Now, this is a pretty straightforward thing, right? We love the Lord, who is truth. We follow Jesus, who is truth. And it stands to reason that we love truth. And the way it works out for us is that we are wide open when it comes to truth. In other words, we want truth to expose us. Don't we? (laughs) See, we understand that truth helps us and guides us to be like Christ. And so we're not afraid of truth. And we don't get upset when a brother or sister lovingly points out that we are not living our lives by truth. We rejoice and even invite our brothers and sisters to see our lives through the lens of truth. Now, these last four facets of the agape jewel, some learned people have turned the all things into nevers. And you'll see this in a second. And I agree with their opinion. It brings more forcefulness to this, to these last four facets. And see if you think so as well. Love bears all things. In other words, never tires of supporting others. Love believes all things or never loses faith. It adopts a favorable interpretation of things that they hear. It lays aside a suspicious mind. Love hopes all things. It never exhausts hope 
for the other person. Love endures all things or never gives up on others. Now, this does not mean that we condone sin. Again, we deal with sin in the church, but it does mean that we are people not of the second chance, but of the many chances as it takes. In other words, Christians have to walk away from us. We don't walk away from them. And when they do come back into our lives, we accept them with open arms. Love never fails or never ends. Literally, love never falls down or ultimately collapses. If the Lord is sustaining things, love will never completely go away when it's all said and done. Again, God will fulfill all of His promises. In the context of the Lord Jesus building His church, the Lord will complete His task. And therefore, we will involve ourselves in the building process as well. Right? In other words, we will walk with our brothers and sisters regardless of how deep the water, regardless of how hot the flames. We will love our spiritual siblings. And if we do, we will continue to love our spiritual siblings. That's the divine description of love. And I don't know about you, but I can only say two words here, Lord, help me, or three words. Help me, because I fail on this. I see this list and even the brief descriptions, and I see how woefully short I fall. And my challenge to all of us is twofold. First, let's look at these things. This picture of perfect love, a portrait of Jesus, and see how much we look like Him and how different we are when we compare ourselves to Him. See, and I don't think there's anybody here who can say, hey, I look like Jesus in this department or that department. And my dear brothers and sisters, and I'm profoundly grateful that I can call you my brothers and sisters because what Jesus has done for all of us, by His grace and His love and mercy, He's made us part of His family, those of us who know Him. And so as we take a realistic assessment of our lives regarding these things, let's compare ourselves with Jesus, not with others. Allow the Spirit of God to deal with each one of us We claim to follow Jesus, but if love is the standard, where are you? Where am I in relation to Jesus, relation to true love? Allow this list, these characteristics of love to hit us in the heart, full force. First part of the challenge. Second part of the challenge is that we confess and we repent of everything that doesn't look like love. And for me, this part of the challenge is such a relief that not only is love the standard, but it's also something that the Lord wants us to work toward. He doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, you've, you've, you've blown it, you, you're not part of, you, you haven't met the standard, I'm sending you to hell. No, he says, hey, I want you to work toward this. None of us are there yet. Can you agree? That's what 1 John 1, 9 is all about, isn't it? If we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a profound promise that is. And so what I want us to do, just for a moment, I want us to to sit in the silence. I want us to take our hearts to the Lord and ask Him, Lord, search me in these areas of love. Try me, know me, 
And Lord, show me the, the one most glaring area of my life right now that you can help me with, that I confess to you. Take just a moment. But my encouragement to all of us is that we won't just do this today. We will do this in the days, the weeks, the months ahead. We want to be people who love agape style. So just take a moment and go before the Lord. Search us, O God. Know our hearts. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. Lord, these areas of my life, these areas of my life compared to to love, I fall far short. Help me please, Lord. Help all of us for your sake. Amen. So you're ready for part three. We saw how important love is and what love looks like. Now let's take a look at the surpassing greatness of God's love in verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is agape, is love. In this section, did you catch how incomplete everything is here? How murky are the waters? Paul goes back to the issue of the spiritual gifts here. And look again at some of the gifts. He says, notice in verses 8 to 10 how Paul reminds them of the gifts, that they're temporary. He says prophecies, tongues, knowledge, all of these things will go away. But look at the incredible truth found in verse 10. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And what I'm convinced about this is that the perfect is the kingdom that when Jesus comes, he's going to set up. It's going to be perfect then. It's going to be perfect righteousness, perfect justice, perfect love. God is going to set this up. Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, and the perfect kingdom is going to be there. There will also be a perfectly mature body of Christ. Did you know that? As I mentioned, spiritual gifts are temporary, but for how long? For lack of time, we don't have time to turn to Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 to 16. But in there, he's talking about the gifts are given until we attain to the unity of the faith, to the, to the perfect stature of the Son of God. And when will that be? When Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom. It's amazing what we have to look forward to. Spiritual gifts are displayed until we all come to that unity of the faith. And the bottom line is that the spiritual manifestation in the body of Christ at Grace United and all the other churches that truly honor the Lord will cease then. They will no longer be needed because the Lord will have brought us to maturity when he comes. 
when Jesus comes back, he will receive us unto himself, the entire church, down through the ages. He will take us for his bride, for he is the divine bridegroom. And that's great for the church as a whole, but individually as well. Notice Paul says in verses 11 and 12, every one of us will be mature. Every one of us will. Because God will then be doing the maturing in our lives. Remember Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ when he sets his kingdom up. And Paul tells us that we will know fully as we are fully known. And Paul is referring here to the quality and intimacy of relationship. See, right now, we experience partial things in our relationship with the Lord. Isn't that true? How many of us long for a closer walk with Jesus? We see Him through a glass, though, don't we? I know Him, but try as I might, is always from a distance. I want to get to Him, but I can't. But in the end, like a bride and the bridegroom, we as His people will know our God fully. Right now, sin is a barrier. Then there won't be. Right now, limitations between us as human beings and Christ abound. Then there won't be. There was a song by uh, Wayne Watson and Santa Patty a number of years ago. It's called Another Time, Another Place. Maybe some of you have heard of it. And the storyline talks about how, how we struggle in this life and we get tired of earthly things, but we want the Lord See, there's suffering, there's pain, and how we as his people desperately, intensely long for the day when we'll be swept away, where all of our hopes and our dreams will be captured with just one look at Jesus' face. Where all of life's joys combined, the sweetest joys, they'll be paling in comparison in that day when we will know him as he fully knows us. But right now, we as Christians have placed our faith in Christ, not in Christianity. We as Christians have hope, eternal hope, that not that the world is going to get better or not that racism and the pandemics will go away, but we have the rock-solid conviction that Jesus is going to return, that he's coming back, and we will see him. And those who fall asleep in Jesus will then begin their eternal life before he comes back because To die in Christ is gain. But what is greater than faith? What is greater than hope? Is love. Why is that? Because that is why God made us. To express his holy love. That's why he redeemed us. That we might experience his holy everlasting love. And throughout eternity, our hopes, our dreams, our joys will be captured in the intimate love relationship we will have with the Lord Jesus Christ. A a repeated refrain from another time, another place is, my heart keeps burning. My soul keeps yearning. Sometimes I can hardly wait for that sweet, sweet someday when I'll be swept away to another time, another place. I can resonate with that, can't you? What a day that's going to be. But that time is not now. So what do we do in the meantime? In a word, we teach. We teach. 
We teach the difference between the world's love and agape. Let me take us back to one of the facets of love of this jewel called agape, where love does not insist on its own way. And it's right here that I'm convinced is the very heart and soul of all the ills in our world. Pretty big statement, isn't it? But let me explain. Why is it that people lambast others in public for not wearing a mask or others for wearing one? How many people will be killed today because they do not say certain words or they're forced to say other words? How many people call Christians unloving and judgmental because we are still chained to the outdated Neanderthal puritanical ideas of sexual expression and identity? I'm convinced that critical mass is right here, what I'm talking about. See, in the Greek language, there are different kinds of words for love. We've talked about agape love. It's a self-giving love that acts on the betterment and for the betterment of others. Agape meets the needs of others. It honors God and glorifies Him. Agape love has been described as a kind of love that can't wait to give. On the other hand, there's another word for love. It's eros. That's the kind of love that can't wait to get. See, in the English language, we use love for eros or agape. Again, eros is a self-seeking love. It pursues what it desires, and it won't stop until it gets what it wants. Sexuality is included. We hear the term erotic literature. That's where this comes from. But it's much more than that. Sexuality is included, yes, but it really is a lifestyle. Eros always turned the object of its love into a thing, something to be possessed, even if it's a person made in God's image. Time fails us to even scratch the surface of all the ways that Eros is working out in our lives, in our world. See, it was Eros in the Corinthian culture that ruled the day. But Paul brought radical agape into the culture. As we've seen in this chapter, instead of love as being self-seeking, the church was then and is today to demonstrate self-giving, self-sacrifice. It's like our Lord did, right? And He still does as He continually prays for us. But agape was and is so radical compared to eros that it was observed by one historian that without agape, nothing that is Christian would be Christian. And today... As in the first century, the battle lines are drawn. Eros rules the day, does it not? It rules the world as it did in the first century Corinth. As more people live out Eros, the more they're going to destroy themselves and everyone around them. But as we who follow Christ, as we reintroduce agape into our culture, it will cause people to sit up and to take notice, at least those who have been harmed and damaged by eros. We watch with horror, don't we? And some of us experience our loved ones actually living out eros, don't we? And tragically, the world has even trained many Christians to live eros, to live an eros lifestyle when we are supposed to live agape lifestyle. We see culture literally burn to the ground. Why? Because of eros. There's a name for this, isn't it? It's called cancel culture. And the more those who live eros, the more we are going to see it. But if the church of Jesus Christ, on the whole, can practice agape, 
we will then be able to show through our expressions of agape and influence others who are sold out to Eros to show them that there really is a better way. And for us, as we know, agape is a better way to live, isn't it? And one day we will with our eyes see the one who made it all possible. The one, the lover of our souls, the one who loved us with agape love, sacrificed himself for us, and we will be with him forever. And when we see him, all of our hopes, all of our dreams will be captured with just one look at Jesus' face. Let's live for that day. Paul closes out the letter, 1 Corinthians 16, 14. He says, let all you do be done with agape. And while we wait for Jesus' return, let us live in love. Let's pray. Lord, this has been a tough message. Love, we would think, would be so nice and so, so airy, so so bubbly or whatever you want to call it, it's because we've been duped by the world. But Lord, the the love that you're talking about, the love that really is real, is a tough thing. And apart from you, Lord, it's impossible. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for helping us. Thank you, Lord, for showing us and instructing us in what love really is. Lord, I pray that you would help us as Grace United and every church that honors you, that, Lord, we would be indeed practicing agape so that we can show the world that lives in Eros that there is a better way. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word that is eternal in the heavens, that lives forever, that will never be done away with. Thank you, Lord, that we can live this way. And by your power, we endeavor to do that. Now, Lord, I pray as we finish the service that you will will excite us, that you will encourage us, that you will help us truly to live agape, an agape lifestyle, because you agape'd us first. In Jesus' name we pray.